Sports Philanthropy is devoted to creating corporate social responsibility by using sports for the common good. But Sports Philanthropy in Australia needs our attention. How does Sports Philanthropy gain the attention and trust of the Australian public? We've got the green and gold decade culminating in the Olympic and Paralympic Games being held in Brisbane in 2032 creates a once in a generation opportunity to grow philanthropic giving to sport in this country. On this episode, we hold a roundtable discussion diving into philanthropic opportunities in Australian sport. We discuss how sport can be a vehicle to drive social change, identify how to develop a fundraising strategy, discuss the sports funding narrative, power of elite athletes, and the opportunities the billion dollar philanthropic market in Australia presents for sport. So Darren, Trish, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast where we're going to talk about philanthropic opportunities in Australian sport. And so I kind of want to go around the table here where I'd love for you to introduce yourself, um, you know, what you studied at university and what you do today. And, you know, is this the career that you envision? So I'd love to start with Trish. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I actually originally never finished a degree. I started it in communications at the University of Newcastle. I did two years. At that time, it was a uh, a choice of a major between public relations and journalism. So I chose public relations. And again, at that time, it wasn't an easy industry to get into. So I was offered a role uh, starting in PR and took it and never finished my degree, went back to TAFE and did a certificate and then worked for many, many years in different roles in sport uh, after that and went back and did a graduate certificate in social impact uh, and then most recently finished the George Washington University uh, Sports for Philanthropy certificate as well. So my my education has mainly been post-career and where I've learned has been on the ground. Is it a career you expected? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no. Uh, way back then, public relations was all about long lunches and champagne. That's what I thought I was expecting. Not uh, not dressing rooms and smelly footy boots. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, Nathan, let's go to you. Uh, that was good. <laughs> much the same as well, to be honest. <laughs> um, but no, I studied a, a Bachelor of Business majoring in marketing. Um, with a minor in sports management. Um, yeah, for me, it certainly wasn't definitely not where I thought my career would go. I think for me coming out of high school, which is probably the case for a lot of people, it's not really um, not a whole lot of thought into exactly where you want to be down the track. It's kind of more just what resonates with you in terms of whether you're good at it at school or whether you like the subject matter and that being sport, you know, I love sport growing up. So it just made a, made a logical choice for me. Um, so yeah, just hopped around a little bit within sports industry in various different sort of sales and marketing roles. Um, and then sort of during COVID, I think it was just before COVID, I found a, a role within sports philanthropy. Um, and even just sort of a couple of years in the role, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't overly sure about it. And then I just remember at one point I was doing a bit of a, a business immersion. Um, it was actually with a, a university uh, MBA project team. And they just put the question to me, uh, why is sport important? And it was just in sort of trying to articulate my answer for that question. I was just, it, it just clicked for me, you know, sport and philanthropy. And um, yeah, just since that question, I suppose it's just a, it's a space that I absolutely love. Um, and yeah, just, it, it just gets me excited, I think. And every day I sort of, yeah, doesn't feel like a job, you know, it's just kind of just your chance to give back through, through that vehicle of sport. So absolutely love it. Yeah, we're definitely going to dive deeper into this, what, why sport is important. But uh, last but not least, let's go to Darren. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. And uh, some similar hallmarks probably to, I think, what Nathan said uh, and and lovely to be on alongside Trish uh, as well. I remember being back in high school and my career counsellor saying, you know, when I wanted to be doing something in sport, you know, your dream job probably hasn't even been invented yet. And at the time, I didn't really know how to process that uh, that statement, but it's really, I think, proven true since then. Uh, you know, I went in through and studied a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science and a Bachelor of Commerce uh, majoring in Sport Management at Deakin University. Uh, like a lot of people that do that degree, I think I, I had dreams of being a sports scientist at the AIS, working with elite athletes. You know, that appeal and allure of elite sport is 
uh, I think, really strong when you're starting out in your pathway. Uh, then there's also the reality of, you know, what helps pay the bills? What can you sort of, you know, um, you know what are you willing to sort of get into? Uh, and I'd always loved the community sports side of things as well. Uh, that had been a huge part of my life since I was 14, 15 years old. Um, but straight out of uni, I, I went into the uh, event space, uh, worked in event management for a number of years uh, before heading into game development uh, and working in junior game development programs, uh, coach developments at a community level um, before moving into a sport partnerships role. Um, with a clothing brand, Two Times You, in, in Australian-owned. Uh, and then uh, COVID hit. And so I think, you know, is my career what I envisaged when I was a student? It's probably not even what I envisaged <laughs> three years ago or so, I think. Um, I think so, you know, the ability to now be running my own consultancy and uh, leading sport development projects from my home uh, is certainly nothing I envisaged uh, when I was younger, but uh, certainly something I'm really enjoying. And for all the reasons that Trish and Nathan uh, said that sport is um, just something we enjoy, that we know the, the social, physical benefits of it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's great to be involved and here with you all today. So we're going to get straight, dive straight into it. And I've always believed that sport is one of the greatest vehicles for philanthropy. And I'm going to start with Nathan. How do you define sports philanthropy and, you know, why does sport need it? Yeah, it's it, it's it's a big question, <laughs> really. Um for me, put simply, I guess sports philanthropy is using the vehicle of sport um, to create positive social change or impact within our communities. Um, and I guess why we need it, I think, is sport just has this unique ability to to drive change. You know, for um, a disadvantaged youth, you know, giving them a footy just makes sense for them and the lessons that we can teach that individual through playing the game, you know, such as the importance of teamwork, resilience, you know, all these soft life sort of skills. That is to me why sports philanthropy is so important because you can't replicate that in another scenario. You know, sport is that, that product that really drives that change. Trish, you mentioned before you studied the George Washington University Sports Philanthropy Certificate, which is what I'm studying now and why we're doing this roundtable. Through your study and doing that certificate, with the impact of sport and I guess the, the roles that you've been in with the Sydney Kings and now with um, Nepal, New South Wales, like have you always seen sport being a vehicle for change? Yeah, I, I, I have. Honestly, um, it has been a passion of mine for 20 years uh, in my career. So I I was lucky enough way back in the 90s to uh, take on a internship in Orlando Magic in the NBA. And I'd never seen or heard of any type of program that they were running, which, you know, traditionally I would call sport for social change type programs. They call it their community programs. You know, way back then, 20 years ago, it was community, community, community. Um, and, and to see the impact that team had on their town, their city, uh, the kids in that area, uh, I, I was so, so enthralled with that and I couldn't, I, I'd never thought of sport that way myself. Um, so I came back to Australia and I was like, I want to do that. I, I want a job in that space. But there wasn't any. There was no, you know, Honestly, talking to people then, they were just like, what is this girl talking about? Um, so I actually applied for a job as a media manager at uh, the Parramatta Eels NRL team. And I'd had, I'd had that um, public relations experience. I'd had that experience uh, at Orlando. And I, I convinced them to give me the job based on what I had seen at the NBA and been able to deliver positive public relations um, campaigns based on work done in the community. So they actually changed when I got that job. They changed the job to media and community relations manager. And uh, that was Super League years. Um, it was NRL players had only just been professional. I'm showing my age now. I'm sorry. Um, the, you know, but it, it, and, and back then to, to get players to actually go and participate in these programs, I pretty much had to drive to their houses and push them into my car. Um, to make them do it. And eventually they started to see the impact even back then and understand the power that they've had. So it's it's changed, you know, 
it's changed so much, uh, so much. You know, from there I went to the NRL and I, I headed up their community programs and created those. They were the first ones that they'd ever had. And again, it was community. It was that word, community. Um, after doing the social impact uh, course at University of New South Wales, that's when I started to call it Sport for Social Change. And now we're calling it Sports for Philanthropy. So, and that's in 20 years, you know, it's not that, not that long ago. I promise. <laughs> I, see, I would love to first to dive deeper into the Orlando Magic internship. I know Darren would probably agree with that too, but I don't think we've got en enough time. We're going to have to circle back. We're going to have to get you on. In, I'm going to have to get you on, on another episode, I think, in the near future. And I think community is a really good segue into the next thing because I guess, Darren, the, the community that you're helping, I guess, build at McKinnon through basketball, using basketball as a vehicle to not only, I guess, create change, but creating that community, uh, as you kind of we talked about off off air about being one of the top 15 uh, largest clubs there in Victoria. But I want to talk about sports philanthropy as, it, you know, it's an emerging area for Australians. Uh, we've seen it being, I guess, especially difficult during economic conditions. We've been dealing with lately, uh, you know, the flaw effect with Australian households and all that kind of stuff. So with the growing trends of increased costs to running a sports club, how can sport be seen as charitable in Australia? Yeah, it's a great question. I think if sport wants to be seen as charitable and be linked in with uh, these other, you know, non-profits uh, who have fantastic, you know, drive and fundraising efforts, I think they really need to have a sharp understanding of the impact and purpose that they serve to their community beyond results and performances. Uh, I think if, if we talk about from your typical sports club uh, in Australia to, um, you know, a peak body, uh, you know, going from just the way you see your purpose as a, is to, say, just deliver, you know, netball services to, you know, people in eastern Sydney to understanding the broader purpose that you have um, going beyond the transactional of, you know, membership fees for participation in a sport to the transformational side of things and the impact that you can actually have on your community. Uh, the basketball club that I grew up with, um, Elf and Wildcats in the northeast of Melbourne, they are not, they don't really position themselves as a, you know, basketball service deliverer. Uh, they are the largest employer of, you know, young people in the, in the entire region in the northeast. Uh, and that is a huge impact. People like me, uh, lots of others were able to grow up having that impact. So I think that's uh, a really important area. And then if they want to be seen as charitable as well, they've really got to direct the funds that they're receiving into meaningful projects. Um, you know, not the former elite player who comes in and, you know, kicks a few goals on the weekend or uh, the end of season trip. I mean, they're fairly, you know, extreme examples. I know a lot of clubs don't necessarily, um, you know, fall into those, but just making sure that they're identifying what their impact act as a and understanding what that is as a as a community club or a peak body and then directing the funds into those projects impact i guess is a pretty key word that we've all been i guess sh sharing volunteers though darren i think you know trish and nathan can all agree through our time growing up in sport how important volunteers are and how they can be part of i guess the philanthropic um, pipeline as well how important are volunteers to, in your role there at mckinnon darren yeah, I, through what I do with McKinnon and in the in the broader work that I do uh, with organisations, you know, volunteering is absolutely critical. Uh, I think, you know, as sport organisations, we probably need to do a better job of measuring it and understanding that. I think when we're talking about philanthropic, uh, you know, contributions, uh, you know, we can probably pinpoint the dollar amounts that have been gained through, you know, donations, but are we actually quantifying the volunteer you know, impacts that we're or uh, that we're having. Uh, so, and I think, um, yeah, happy happy to hear what the other what the other um, what Nathan and Trish think about this area as well. Uh, but you know, volunteers for a lot of sports are the lifeblood of the sport. Uh, as coaches, officials, as statisticians, and I think particularly as the expectations of key stakeholders around sport and you know parents increase as well. Uh, you know the the roles that our volunteers are being asked to perform are more diverse and wide ranging than they've ever been. What are your thoughts, Trish? Yeah, completely agree. Um, I'm on the committee of our local netball club, and you know when when I started, it was all about you know just trying to get the the teams on the court. Uh, now it's not only that, it is 
creating opportunities for our players to learn um, leadership skills, to empower them to um, so that they grow confidence and they get to know and understand themselves. And, and we are, we're asking a lot of our volunteers. Um, however, they want to do it because they see the impact it not only has on people who play, but themselves. You know, they're a key part of our community and, and they receive from that, um, which I think is key. Nathan, can you get your view on it as well? Because what many people probably don't know is that you're currently based in Spain, so you might be being able to see it from a different lens of what volunteering is like in Europe and with your experience in Australia as well. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting one, and I guess my experience here is probably more for for playing for a Spanish rugby club, actually. Um, but I guess the the thing, look, my, in my experience around community clubs in Australia is probably just more um, when I was a little bit younger. Uh, coming through and I guess you probably don't really notice the importance or the impact of those volunteers but one thing I've realized here is and maybe it's a cultural thing is the sports club is their community so everything revolves around the club you know if they have a match on Saturday there's probably 20 people from Wednesday afternoon preparing things setting up cooking right through to the game day, the event, everyone who's associated with the club sticks around, has food, sort of, you know, contributes over the bar, whether it's buying drinks or whatever it might be. And then even on Sunday or Monday, they're back to then clean up and then turn around and do it again. You know, it's this real ingrained cultural community and that all revolves around their sports club. Um, so it is a little bit unique. I, I also think just... Obviously, it is a bit of a struggle at the moment to sort of encourage volunteer, volunteers, but I think we need to take more, or particularly professional clubs, professional organisations within um, the sporting space to try and give back when we can um, to encourage that volunteer, so give back to go into the communities, whether it be taking players or coaching staff into those community clubs and provide that sort of added benefit, I suppose, to being part of the game. And I think one thing for volunteers as well is the simple notion of being thanked. I think that's something that gets lost on, on, a, on clubs. And there's a really great line when I was part of a conference a few years ago where one of the speakers said, volunteers don't volunteer to be thanked, but they notice when they're not. And it was such a powerful message for me where I'm like, every time someone volunteers, be it half an hour, be it you guys being on the podcast, I don't think I, I can thank you enough. And people probably get a little bit sick of me thanking them, but it's something that is kind of, kind of being drilled in me for the last few years. Speaking of community, Trish, I'm kind of keen to get your thoughts on this because uh, funding is always an issue in Australian sport. There's always increased competition for dollars. How important is engaging and educating your community? Oh, look, I, to be honest, it's everything. Um, I don't think you can create a fundraising strategy without it. Uh, and, and I do see our professional clubs um, and sports getting better and better at this because um, Sports, uh, sports all about tribalism, right? And passion. And, um, if, if those people who are so passionate about you, they're already paying you money either to go and watch you play or buy your jerseys or, um, pay for their kids to be members of your sport, then that's where you, your target market is. So you, you, you have to know, um, you have to engage them. But the key thing is, and, and Darren already touched on it. You've, you've got to tell them where the money's going, what the purpose is for, what the impact is going to be. Um, and then you need to identify who you're going to ask for support. So without, without you know, we, and I agree completely, and one of you said it before, we need to turn the dial on it's we're not just here to win and compete. We're here to actually make an impact on people's lives. Um, and, and the best example of that is... Um, I was lucky enough to be fundraising manager at Paralympics um, in the lead up to for Paralympics Australia in the lead up to Tokyo 2020, which became Tokyo 2020 in 2021. Um, and, and when I started there in fundraising, they were all they were going and asking people to support them to get the team to the next game. But in reality, we didn't know if the games were going to happen. And in reality, you know, if and you'd asked anybody there, and it wasn't a secret. They already had enough money to get the team 
to the next games. What they weren't talking about at all was the impact they were having not just on participants in the Paralympics and the people that were lucky enough to make the Paralympic team, you know, who worked hard enough, but the impact they were having on every child with a disability in Australia um, who saw those athletes as, you know, themselves and went, oh, I, could, I could do this. Um, and it was getting them off the couch and getting them engaged in community and um, talking about, you know, the impact of them just, you know, coming and trying sport for the first time and creating that community. Um, to be able to twist that dial made a massive difference and that was why that campaign was so successful. I don't know if you remember the Virtual Seats campaign. Um, yeah. Donated, donated. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that that blew everybody out of the water with how successful it was. I mean, there was the perfect storm in terms of everybody was at home sitting on their couch because we were all locked down watching it. It was in the right time zone. Um, the broadcasters got on board to support it, which was fantastic. But, and you could see, you know, you can't um, be what you can't see, right? So, you know, you could see the impact that they were having, but also we asked um, for support for the right reasons. And we were very clear on that case for support. So I think, you know, no matter what sport, level of sport you are, grassroots to professional, you have to be really clear on your purpose and impact. How important is collaboration then? I think, Darren, you're going to probably um, share your thoughts on this as well, but it seems like collaboration, Trish, as well, was a pretty key factor to the success of your campaigns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, collaboration in terms of Paralympics, absolutely, because it's you had to collaborate with all the sports that contributed to um, brought athletes to the game. So it wasn't just, it was archery, it was cycling, it was swimming, you know, tennis, etc. So collaboration's key, but collaboration with your community in terms of the communication, I think, is key as well. What are your thoughts, Darren? I, I'm thinking about the virtual seats campaign, uh, you know, that Trish spoke to, and something like that only becomes possible, I think, when you build up trust and you have the permission from, you know, your community to to engage on that sort of thing. You, you know, that comes from collaboration and engagement uh, doubling down on what Trish said, like it is the most important thing that underpins a fundraising strategy. I think you can have the best offer in the, you know, in the world, but, uh, you know, having your community feel connected to what you're doing and even engaging them about what they might want to donate to, like sort of co-designing potential projects with them, uh, will then make them feel a part of it, uh, you know, a feeling like they're part of something bigger than just the organisation or the sport uh, there as well. So, yeah, that, that's the first thing that comes into my mind when it comes to uh, collaboration. Uh, and then I think with any fundraising strategy, yeah, looking uh, – Broader than I think a lot of organizations might have a commercial person that looks at sponsorship from, you know, from business sources. Uh, they have their membership side and look at their membership fees quite closely. But yeah, looking at the, the grants area closely and that, that donor side, the, I know we're going to talk about the Australian Sports Foundation, but, uh, there's a huge collaboration opportunity that's being uh, left untapped for a lot of sports organizations. Yeah. So let, let's move in, into the, the next next side of this, I guess, conversation, because sport currently receives less than 1% of tax-deductible gifts annually. You know, Australians donate $13 billion a year, and I spoke with uh, Australian Sports Foundation here the other day, and they only get 0.7% of that, which 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 is astounding. So, Nathan, you know, this is your area, your expertise. I really want to talk about the opportunities, and I'm really keen to get Trish and Darren's thoughts on this. So, what opportunities does the philanthropic market in Australia present for sport? Well, you mentioned it just there in the numbers. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. So I think for us um, working within the sports philanthropy space is just taking these key learnings um, from the arts, you know, from the successful fundraising organisations, the charity space, taking those key learnings, those key insights, because it doesn't matter what you're fundraising for, the, the fundamentals are still the same. So how can we tell the positive stories that are coming out of sports and kind of flip that narrative a little bit? As, as we've mentioned, it's not, it's not so much about winning the premiership. The premiership's only temporary. What is permanent is the impact that we can have through our organizations. So how do we go about telling that story 
in the best possible way to make sure that we are giving ourselves and our organisations every opportunity to capture some of those donation dollars. Trish, thoughts? Yeah, I honestly think, I agree, there's a huge opportunity, but I still think we're a long way from capitalising on it. And I think it's around the words that we use and the de those definitions. I just don't think Australians are ready yet to see sport as being in the same realm as charity and as the arts. And that's because of, you know, the traditional funding of Australian sport in many of our big, big sports is from the bottom up, right? So, you know, people are already paying to participate and they think, well, why would we pay for anything, anything more? Um, they think the big end of town sponsors sport, so why does sport need more? And they think sport, which it does, gets a lot of government funding. So um, whilst there is a huge opportunity, I, I still think we're a long way. Um, we're a long way from getting there. I, I've seen some, you know, professional clubs especially do it really well, targeting high net worth individuals that are supporters of their club. Um, and that's, you know, when I say easy to do, it's far from easy. I'm sure Nathan, you would agree. Um, but they've they've got the right setup. They've got a foundation. It's tax deductible to donate, and they're very clear where that money's going. Um, but yeah, I, I still think we're I still think it need, we need a lot of education out there. People don't think sport needs the money, no matter what our impact is as an industry. It's also because I guess you touched on I guess the start of this chat was about the tribalism of sport where it would be really hard to have a consistent narrative in regards to sport with where the funding needs to go, where the arts do a really good job of crying poor, yet they get more funding yes. for the arts than sport. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And, and, and it is the way, you know, like I said, just the history of sport in Australia. So I actually sat in the, um, the National Sports Strategy um, they're doing some roundtables uh, in every state, um, the Australian um, Sports Commission, to, to try and build the next strategy at the other day. So I was there on Monday. And it was really, really awesome to see them start to talk about sport, you know, as that, you know, it's for our health, it's for our mental health, it, it, it encourages people, um, it builds communities. You know, it was really encouraging to see them talk like that. So I think as collectively as a sport it's industry, if we can start to talk like that, I think it will make a difference, but it's going to take some time. What are your thoughts, Darren? Yeah, I, a lot of what Trish said resonated with me. I see a number of clubs that are, I say, a little bit reluctant to ask, uh, and that may be because, you know, they don't want to be feeling to be sort of putting out the collection tin. They, they feel like they're there to serve their members. And then by asking their members to sort of um, pay in addition of what they're already trying to keep as a very low cost service, um, maybe doesn't feel, yeah, too aligned with their personal values or uh, things like that. And I, and I, and I completely re respect that. I think the opportunities that exist, um, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of projects. I think the Australian Sports Foundation, I, when I first came across it, I thought it was almost too good to be true. For a, for a club or someone who, uh, even if you're at a peak body, the ability to crowdsource, kickstart any project that, uh, is maybe not getting the love within your organization or, uh, just you, you know, looking for alternate sources of fundraising, uh, whether that's, you know, facilities, a, a coach development fund, you know, equipment, uh, that's one of the first ones I see. Uh, Nathan talked about learning from what these, you know, charities are doing and, and one of the key ones I see there is around, for example, leaving a gift in your will. Uh, there's a lot of great, uh, you know, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, RSPCA have some really well-established, um, you know, systems around that and dedicated, you know, staff, no doubt, towards those sort of things. Uh, I, I think if that's an egg that sport can crack, uh, I think there's opportunities there uh, as well. And I think the opportunities uh, around where technology has changed in the last even three or four years um, mean that it's never been easier for a club to get donations. You know, I've um, supported a mountain bike track in Queensland that was seeking uh, some fundraising ideas to get upgrades to their track. 
and we sort of discussed, well, you can, you know, put a QR code at either the end of the track or at the start of the track and or at the local bike shop where, you know, you can collect tax deductible donations or, uh, uh, you know, even square payments, the ability to make a tap and go, uh, maybe not tax deductible, but still some sort of donation. Like, I think there's um, so many, yeah, opportunities there. Uh, the, the final one, if it, um, you, don't, you don't mind me saying, is around, I think around global reach as well. Like, you don't have to fundraise just in your own postcode anymore. Uh, if you've got a story that really resonates with a community, like, your reach can be global. Um, that can probably be a little bit of a threat, though, too, because it opens up to quite a competitive pool. But, yeah, I think it's a really exciting space. No, that's really, really some good points there from the opportunities, but I think really good segue, Darren, in regards to the threats, because I want to start this with, with, with Trish, because Australian Sports Foundation, you know, they consider that, I guess, the green and gold decade coming up, culminating the Olympic and Paralympic Games being held in Brisbane in 2032, creates a once-in-generation opportunity to grow philanthropic giving to sport to a level that it gives to the arts sector, which is estimated to raise over $300 million from philanthropic sources each year. So, Trish, how would you see the threats to the sports philanthropic market in Australia? Yeah, um, there's there's quite a few, and and I still, you know, I don't want to harp on it, but I still go back to the fact that, um, you know, there's a long way to go for there to be, you know, a really true sports philanthropic market in Australia. Um, we're getting there, and you know, like we've talked about, the Sports Foundation is a huge example of that. I remember them coming back to me. Um, years ago, and I, and I completely agreed, Darren. I was like, "There's no way you're going to get this up the ground, off the ground. It is way too good to be true." And it's so exciting, you know, to see now there's individuals raising money, um, grassroots clubs, professional clubs, and and I saw on their website the other day they they've raised nearly four hundred million dollars. So um, there is opportunities there. In terms of threats, it, some people could say that um, the Olympics and Paralympics in Brisbane you know, is a threat in terms of people think that's all funded by the government. Um, some people don't agree with having it here. And, you know, so there'll be a huge argument around there. Um, I also think the the um, the threat of um, structure is, is a big one. So, um, like I said, you know, the traditional sports funding model is from the ground up. So it, it's, it's, it's a lot of changing, changing mindset, um, and then with that comes technology. So, if you if you weren't using, and, and when I say structure around legislation, so if you're if you're a local grassroots club like my local netball club, um, if I didn't know about Australian Sports Foundation and they didn't find it, they'd have to you know ch really change the way they're set up so that they become a not for profit rather than um, you know, um, incorporated organisations so that they could collect money and, you know, there'd have to be so much more, um, you know, I'm not saying that we're not, you know, we don't have good governance, but the governance would have to be increased. So then you've got threats around volunteering and who's going to do that and can you afford to pay someone to do that? So I, I think there's, um, there's legislation, technology, um, you know, not every club can afford to go out and get those square readers for to donate. Not every club knows where to, to set up. Um, and then the, the other the other key, I don't know if this is a threat, it's also an opportunity, but um, if it's not done right, storytelling. So storytelling is what is what what will get everyone over the line when it comes to donating at, but there's a risk of not doing that effectively. Um, and then sending it to the right people. So people have to really, really want to support you. There's, there's um, almost too many sports, which is probably another threat as well. So for a small country, you know, what if I want to give to table tennis, but they're not asking me, um, rather than my local NRL club, who I think they've already got millions, so why don't they need my money? Um, Funny, I said yeah. I said that to a sports marketer recently, Trish, where I said I think there's too many um, professional sports in Australia and of course he's in sports marketing and relies on their money and disagreed with me wholeheartedly <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's good to hear that someone else kind of agrees with you. Nath, what's, uh, what are your thoughts on I guess the threats? Yeah, that's what, you know, it's, it's an unavoidable conversation topic at the moment. Interest rates, like just looking at the macroeconomic factors at the moment, like the cost of participation, um, there's obviously limited discretionary 
spending. So to ask, um, to put your hand out and ask for some funds, particularly as a, a perceived wealthy NRL club or, or professional sports organisation, um, is, is a bit of a tough ask. And it, it, it is, it comes back to that education piece and making sure that we are doing our best to tell those stories and why our impact is important. And just on that club factor as well, I suppose, if the leaders within our organisations want to prioritise potentially short-term success, whether that's on the field, it might come at the cost of the long-term investment that is community development as well. Um, and probably just finally, I think, uh, was it, I know we've mentioned in the AFF quite a lot in this, in this call, but, um, during the week or last week, I think it was, they released their clubs under pressure report, which stated something like 20% of, um, clubs were considering to close their doors. So to me, that was just absolutely alarming, but very, very concerning the fact that these grassroots clubs, which we rely on, to bring not just the talent through, but grow, you know, the popularity of our sports. The fact that 20% of them could close their doors, that, that to me is an, a major immediate threat. Your thoughts, Darren? Yeah. What the first thought that comes into my mind when Nathan talks about particularly those, um, you know, clubs that are looking to shut their doors is not just the, the, the financial reality that might lead to that, but also, uh, just too much being left to too few. And probably one of the challenges being around the sports philanthropic market in Australia is that we don't lose the sight of the value of the vol- of the volunteer. Uh, I'm all for one about creating, you know, as much capacity within the sport as we can and, you know, being able to offer paid roles to maybe someone who was volunteering and shifting to a somewhat uh, more professionalised workforce certainly has its benefits. But I think first and foremost before that is understanding giving you know, valued roles, having them feel purpose. Um, I think purpose is a must-have. You know, pay is a nice-to-have when it comes to, you know, to volunteers. Uh, and, I think, yeah, Nathan said as well around the economy and I think people pulling back on discretionary spending or being at least more diligent on where they're going to put that over the coming years uh, is going to really um, prompt sport organisations to have that their ask, uh, something you know, I learned from Trish uh, around, you know, what does that look like and how are they positioning themselves on that? Um, and then in terms of just volunteering more generally, yeah, it is a there is a lot more expectations and I think even a lot of leagues are now mandating uh, you know, different coaching qualifications or things like that for their volunteers, which I think is absolutely warranted to promote child safe environments and raise the minimum standard of delivery um, across the sport. But it is also an extra requirement often for uh, volunteers as well. So it's something that needs to be carefully juggled. It's funny you touch on that, Darren, because I think I had to I had to do with my coaching uh, earlier this year. I had to do a few surveys and online courses and stuff, and I was just like, oh my god! Like I only took half an hour of of my life, but it's just amazing how you feel like it's such an in- inconvenience. But it is a necessity, and it, I think it comes down to with Christian was all about that storytelling and educating um, your audience. But Nathan, you you touched on the Australian Sports Foundation survey, and I'm gonna direct this question to Darren first and get everyone's thoughts on because in early 2023, the Transports Foundation conducted the Your Sport, Your Say research and identified key five, five key challenges. And as you highlighted, Nathan, number one, one in four small clubs are considered closing in the last year. Number two is rising costs are impacting participation and pushing many clubs towards insolvency. Number three, teenagers are continuing to disengage with community sport, which is really scary. Uh, Four clubs are struggling with less volunteers and more administration, and five club wants facilities participation and volunteer support ahead of 2032. So, Darren, how can local clubs turn these challenges into not only opportunities but a strength? Yeah, firstly, uh, a good dose of optimism. I mean, the reality is these are quite tough, uh, you know, challenges that have been identified. Uh, they don't necessarily have easy solutions. Uh, but while we're talking about particularly, I guess, a fundraising side of things. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there in, in Australian community and even, you know, abroad 
who would want to support these these challenges if the solution is you know gift wrapped correctly for them what i mean is it's there's a certain product or initiative put up on you know whether it's the australian sports foundation or through a variety of different platforms uh that really gets the heart of what that's covering uh if i look at one example the you know teenagers are continuing to disengage with community sport well, maybe you can look to, you know, pi- develop a pilot program uh, that is a new initiative, with maybe with more of a social sport uh, angle. Uh, I know there's a lot of government bodies that provide funding for those, but if you miss out on a grants opportunity for that, not seeing that as the be-all and end-all and, you know, finding other means of raising funds to try and test those things out. Um, you know, young people... Uh, still as hungry as ever, I think, for volunteering roles if it's, you know, uh, if they, they feel valued uh, and it's a good way to stay connected within their community. So, you know, transitioning teenagers into other roles, uh, coaching, officiating, uh, you know, administration, um, other roles that you can find for them, I think are really important uh, as well. Uh, and, yeah, around facilities, participation and volunteer support, uh, in terms of leading through to Brisbane 2032, I go, yeah, I, I've still got Trisha's words, um, you know, listening back to them around that people expect that probably the government's going to pay for all of those things. Um, but uh, just recognising, you know, how they can have fundraising strategies to try and improve their chances of facilities or be able to make co-contributions that are then a, a state or a federal government might be able to uh, jump in on. Um, yeah, they're some of the first things that come to mind for me. What are your thoughts, Nathan? Yeah, I, they are significant challenges. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I think, look, for community organisations, like I think a big step is communication and communication internally, finding out who is within the community inside your club, what are the skill sets, you know, a lot of people, obviously a lot of professionals, I'm sure, around the clubs who might have experience in various different, um, you know, various different areas. So tapping into that community to try and lighten the load, you know, if everyone can just do one thing um, and try and really utilise those skill sets and whether that might be in trying to, connections that they might know to bring sponsorship into the club, you know, connections that they might know someone might have heard of the ASF, so then to leverage um, fundraising possibilities, you know, start internally, build that communication so everyone is aware of the situation and ask for help. Trish, what are the discussions like at Nipple New South Wales when it comes to these challenges? Yeah, um, you know what, they are at the forefront of our new strategy that we've recently released um, and to us it's about changing the dial and getting to clubs and associations at a grassroots level to start thinking about the experience they're offering. So I think that is really key and it's always been seen either it's not even been considered or it's been seen as an add-on or something and you know when you first start talking to um, grassroots clubs about it they say well what, what, what does that mean? Like, what, what do you mean by experience? You know, we just rock up and we put them on the court and we create a competition and we wrap people over the knuckles if they do the wrong thing. So it's more about, you know, how welcome are we making people? Um, what, what kind of environment are we providing in terms of encouraging kids, no matter how you know, well or how badly their team is? You know, in big competitions, there's teams that lose a lot. So how, how, what, what kind of experience are we creating creating to make it a fun, welcome, close-knit community. And I think if, if we can turn the dial and get clubs to start to think about that, um, rather than just getting people to register, um, then I think it will change. And, and that's where Netball's really focusing. So how can we build capacity in our associations to provide the best experience possible for their members? Nathan, can you, with some of your clients, like how are they building capacity? Is that something you can share? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's education, to be honest. Education, communication, that's, that's the number one thing. And that also starts with internal, uh, that internal dialogue and everyone understanding, I suppose, the importance of why, why we're doing what we're doing, how it's important, what that impact's going to be. Once we understand that internally, then we're all aligned in our communications outwards as well. And that's sort of from the top right through the entire organisation. So conversations that they're having, um, it's about providing the opportunities no matter who you're talking to. 
that they understand your purpose as an organization and their means of potentially supporting that as well. Chris, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, I haven't prepped you on this question. So if you want to pass, all good. But we've talked about, I guess everyone's highlighted where everyone just assumes all the money is going to come from the government. And I think that's probably, I guess, been a nature of sport, where it's this handout nature kind of thing. Is there an ability or is there something why that sports philanthropy can curb that handout nature? Absolutely. Storytelling and how you can, with more support, what we could achieve. Um, and, I, and I think it does definitely go back to, to again, what the impact that you're having in, either in your local area or at a professional club, whatever it might be, that, you know, we've, we've got to this point but we could get to this further point down the road with your support and this is the impact we could have. Nathan, Darren, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think the peak bodies that are handing out the money, I think, need to, you know, hold some greater accountability uh, to make sure the funds they're giving are being directed into the right projects. But if I put myself back in a, you know, peak bodies shoes, uh, something like that, and, you know, one that was funded probably 80% by the Australian Sports Commission, uh, is I come back to that sort of business adage of what gets measured gets done. And I wonder how many sport organisations actually have a metric or a KPI around, you know, philanthropic fundraising and donations, uh, or if it is just commercial sponsorship and then what's coming in from the government. And I think even if you're creating some $0 budget lines around these areas, uh, they at least make sure that they're on the conversation table every year, like, Hang on, this is our third year in a row. We've got zero dollars of, you know, donations from our, uh, from our community. Uh, is this something we should, you know, continue to look at? Um, so I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a matter of just making sure it's on the table. Nathan? Yeah, I, I agree, Trish, Dan. I think summarise that really well. I think, and I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record here, I think, but communication, transparency, um, you know, I think that Trish, you summarise that really well. This is where we're at today, but with, X contribution. This is, this is our goal. This is what we're striving towards, you know, and, and this funding is coming through the vehicle of fundraising. And therefore, and I suppose the second step to that is once we have the measurement evaluation in place is being completely transparent with this is where we're at with our funding. This is where your contribution has, has got to. And this is the impact that we've created through your contribution and just being very, very clear in that story. Um, I think we owe it to our contributors, our donors, that complete transparency in telling the, the story. That's really good. And nothing wrong with being a broken record there, Nathan. I think it's kind of proven a point where, you know, there's these key areas that we need, need to focus on as a nation um, to, I guess, grow the philanthropic market here in, in sport. But, We've got three minutes left, and so I know I've got a ton more questions I wanted to ask, but uh, let's move on to the last one, and I think we'll, I'll start with Darren. We'll work around and think of the changing nature of giving or donating in Australia. What would your advice for leaders in sports be, Darren? I think double, doubling down on purpose, uh, and, and again, it sort of circles back to a number of the key themes, so I won't yeah reiterate too much of, uh, of that. I think that's spoken for itself. I think we do sport development superbly in Australia. Uh, we're recognised as a world leader in that space. If we think about sport for developments, uh, which, uh, you know, in similar um, connotations or term to philanthropy in terms of giving or the, what we're looking to do for others there, the use of sport as for social impact, uh, I think we typically, with respect, we view that in Australia often as a more of a foreign aid tool or we, we you know we'll 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 help out other nations and use but um a sport in a way to um to help try and improve living conditions over there or teach them about certain skills i'm you know one, really in, involved with a project at the moment uh riding uh, aligned with the basketball world cup and 
developing a basketball program that will uh, help communities recycle more and embedding that within the, you know, recycling within the curriculum. But I think there's a lot more room to probably do that within Australian sport. Uh, and, you know, I think we go into it at a top level around respect maybe and resilience if we're lucky. Uh, but I think there's a real uh, opportunity to go deeper and really double down on the social impacts that, that we're achieving uh, through sport. We know the health benefits of sport. We're pretty good at pe- preaching that. I think sports just need to go further than their, you know, their mission of delivering basketball or, you know, sporting experiences um, and go to more. What's their, what's their impact? What's their, what's their purpose? All right, Nathan. Yeah, and probably with a bit more of a, um, I guess, professional sport lens. And I probably come full circle. I, I guess I'd just like to put it to um, sports leaders is why is sport important? You know, and, and I'm not naive to think that, you know, winning a premiership or a gold medal um, is not, no one competes to, to come second. You know, we all want to win. But at the end of the day, what, why is sport important? And I think it's more than just, winning on the field and we we almost owe it to our communities to have more of an influence more of an impact than just our on-field performance last but not least trish yeah um i think both of you have summed it up beautifully and and i was pretty much gonna um say the same thing but to me it's about uh maybe encouraging all our sports leaders whether they're at professional level or at grassroots level to remember Go back to when they were a kid and remember that joy that sport brought to them, either as a fan or as a participant, and then understand the impact they can have. Um, they can, they are responsible for creating that joy for, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids potentially who they are, or the 30 or so kids in their club. Um, and then once you've got that knowledge, use it to turn the dial on it's not just about winning it, it's about what we can achieve and then go out and spruik it to the rooftops um would be my advice uh yeah have you guys ted lasso fans everybody ted lasso fans absolutely oh, absolutely up to date with the um my favorite speech was rebecca's speech at the table oh um i if, if i could record that and uh, make sure every sports leader in Australia saw it, I think we'd be able to go a long way. I thankfully watched that episode. I totally agree with you. Uh, if you had gone with a spoiler, at the risk of dating this podcast, uh, Josh, I think the finale comes out today, and it will be the thing I watch after this uh, podcast. So if it had been a spoiler 100%. about that, Trish, we, no, we'd no, yeah, no, have no. an issue. Yeah, yeah. I didn't say what was in the speech. I just said everyone should watch it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look that up now. Now, Trish, you've got me because I've I've heard about Ted Lasso. You know, all the memes and stuff, but I haven't uh, haven't watched it yet, which I. Clearly, um, I'm the only one out of this four. I made compulsory um, reviewing for my stuff. Uh, I popped it up on, um, yeah. it's up on my LinkedIn, Josh, if you want to jump across and have a look. I will have a, a look at it. Is that Nathan? Yeah, yeah. Oh, is oh, it? Oh, perfect. Okay, we'll have uh, to connect I'm, on LinkedIn. I'll share it. I know what I'm doing after after this. Um, but that's a great way to wrap this up. And Darren, Trish, Nathan, um, it's been an honour having you on this round table my podcast being part of my capstone project and just really inspired by the work that each one of you are doing in this space and it makes me know makes i think everyone listening to this knowing that sport is in good hands here in australia but as i said before you know volunteers don't volunteer to be thanked but they notice when they're not so trish darren nathan thank you thank you thank you for being part of this and uh look forward to seeing what happens in your careers, not only in the near, but also distant future. But thank you again. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. The High Performing Leaders in Sport podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of lands on which we live and work, the Wajak Nongo people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. 